mind opening your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 5 is where we're at this morning. Um, I'm going to give you a very fast little background as to what we've been doing. Um, and then I'm going to pray. We're going to read the text and we'll talk about what Paul's trying to communicate here. Uh, basically, the story of Galatians is this. Uh, Paul the Apostle was a pastor, teacher. He was also a missionary. He went and started churches. One of the churches or several of the churches he started was in the region called Galatia, uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was a thriving church. Things were going good. They were growing. They were falling in love with Jesus and make, making an impact upon the culture and the community around them. And then what ended up happening was because Paul the Apostle was sort of an itinerant preacher, an evangelist, church planner, it meant by virtue of his vocation that he was always hopping around from place to place. So Paul couldn't stay in the region of Galatia for very long. When Paul left, uh, there's this group of uh, religious leaders that came in. Uh, they claimed to be Christians. They claimed to be from Jerusalem. They claimed to be sort of from the mother church. They claimed to basically have a deeper way of knowing God, of having right relationship with God. So when they came in, they basically uh, told the Galatian believers who Paul had labored, uh, giving his life for, uh, that Paul's message was wrong, or at least uh, half correct, and the way to true Christianity, the way to truly being right with God, is to do what these uh, religious leaders were basically telling them to do. And what they were doing is they were introducing uh, ancient, outdated, or archaic forms of religious practice that were found in the Torah or found in Judaism. So essentially, they were taking Gentile believers who are non-Jewish and essentially bringing them in and saying, in order for you to be right with God, you've got to become Jewish. You've got to follow the laws and traditions of Moses, uh, the way he had prescribed, the way they had given them to us, and therefore you can be right with God just like we are right with God. And so what had happened, it created a major stir amongst them. Uh, people were now, rather than following Jesus and consequently leading into a life of joy, they were now following these religious leaders who are, in essence, building up a following after themselves. And now you had division. You had division in the church. You had loss of joy. You had people going around being critics of everybody else. You essentially had circumcision gospel or circumcision wardens that were going around looking for people to make certain that those who are really part of the community were also circumcised. And so what had happened is it created all sorts of an uproar within the church. People at the end of the day, the way Paul is writing this letter, is saying, you aren't just simply adopting a new form of religious duty. Paul says you guys are actually reverting. You're actually going backwards. You're actually going from freedom back into a form of religious slavery. That's the whole point of the letter to Galatians. And as a result of going back into this form of religious slavery... It's making you hard people. You're not loving each other anymore. You're becoming critics of everybody. You're looking at everybody who's uh, either received the marks of circumcision and you're feeling the sense of brotherhood. Paul's like, it's a false brotherhood. It's a brotherhood built upon your traditions, your rules. And you're looking at, consequently, those who haven't been circumcised and you're judging them. You're criticizing them. You're putting them out. I was going to say castrating, but they've already done that. Or, and, or want to have that done to them. But Paul's basically saying you're creating sort of a subdivision of super Christians and less Christians or varsity Christians and junior varsity Christians. And Paul's whole point is that this is, this is not right. What you guys are doing is leading to another form of slavery. When in reality, Christ died to set you free. That's it. That's the whole point. So what I'm going to do right now, I'm actually going to uh, pray first, and then I'll read the passage, and then we'll get to work on it. So let's pray. Let's read. Jesus, we need your help to be able to understand this passage, to be able to just lay our hearts down, to allow you to speak to us, to work in us, to move through us. We need your help. So God, we just now surrender ourselves to you. We pray, God, that you would just lead and direct. God, give us eyes to be able to see. Father, help us not to just be people that look out at other groups of people and find error in them. God, I pray that you would help us to really look at ourselves clearly first, to try to understand if there's any error in us, to try to understand if there's any close, closeness of heart or restriction upon our own souls, any type of slavery that we need to be rid of in ourselves. God, so just we pray for your help. We need humility to be able to do this. We need honesty to be able to do this. At the end of the day, we just really need the Holy Spirit to be able to lead us and guide us, ultimately to bring us to a point of freedom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, down about verse 6, says this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's, a, he's obligated to keep the whole of the law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But only faith, sorry, working through, law, working through love. That scared some of you guys, huh? It scared me. All right? Paul's point is that circumcision nor uncircumcision profits anything. And so the point that Paul is really trying to drive at is he starts all of this out by, in essence, giving for us a mission statement, a purpose statement. In other words, have you ever kind of wondered, like, what's Jesus all about? What did he do? Why did he come to this earth? What was the whole point of him coming? Well, Paul actually affixes a purpose statement to the whole life of Jesus. He starts out in verse 1 again. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Now, as Americans and as Westerners, we value freedom. It really is the virtue or the right or the entitlement that we all feel like we deserve. And the interesting thing is that we all basically live under this reality, I might even say this illusion, that we're all free. But the simple reality is this, is that we as human beings in this form of government in the West, in America, may actually be freer than those who live in Egypt, right? Who are going through all sorts of reforms right now, all sorts of riots right now to get rid of a despot, an autocrat. Uh, the reality is, is that we as Americans may be freer than those in Iran. But the reality is, is that we may be freer, we may have a better form of government to some degree. All right? But at the end of the day, we're all just a bunch of bound people, bound to some degree, to something, trying to lead other people. So at the end of the day, what the Bible would actually say is that all of us, by virtue of being human, are slaves. All of us. Every human being is a slave. Every human being lives out his existence as slaves. So this whole concept of freedom that we oftentimes dream of and hope for and gets written up in part of scripts and movies, gets sung about, really to some degree, more or less, is either at best a parody of Jesus' freedom or at worst, it's a hopeless dream. So the point that I want to make is this, is that the, the Bible wants us to think in categories of slavery, universal slavery. Hopefully some of this will make sense in a second here. Now the types of slaveries is what we'll try to take a look at here today that the Bible tries to identify. There's two predominant forms of slavery which we'll talk about. The first type of slavery which we'll basically talk at, take a look at is slavery unto death. The second type of slavery is slavery unto life. What I mean by that is we'll kind of dissect this and try to decompress this a little bit as we can. But the point of the matter is at the end of the day is that all of us are slaves. All of us, to some degree, have found ourselves bound and restricted. I'll start off with a very simple, very remedial type of an example. Say, for example, if you're a son and maybe you're 30 years old and your dad is your employer. All right, he's the boss. He owns the business that you work for. Let's say your dad was the type of dad that was always critical of you, always looking down upon you, always questioning you, always critical of things that you did or things that you didn't do, your choice of music, your choice of lifestyle, your type of car you bought, type of clothes you wear, type of music you listen to, yada, 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 all right? And now you live your life trying either one of two ways to rid yourself, to pull yourself away from dad. Either A, you do that by trying exceedingly hard with a lot of energy to try to please your dad so that now you can live under sort of this banner of acceptance. Dad likes you, he's okay, he's not angry for 38 hours. And then dad's angry again because he's a grumpy dad, all right? Now, you have your joy affixed to whether or not dad's happy or dad's angry, dad's upset. You're bound. You're bound. 
you're, you're a slave to dad's opinion, right? You live your life trying to get the affirmation of dad. Or let's say you go the opposite direction where you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to fight and resist and move away. I'll get out of the family business. I'll fight against dad. I'll do everything I can in opposition to dad. Because at the end of the day, you really want to rid yourself from dad. So in this particular setting, your whole life, the whole trajectory of your life is not moving necessarily towards something as much as it is to move away from something. You're bound. You're in the orbit of your dad, and you're trying to desperately as much as you can to get yourself out of the orbit of your dad. You're bound. You're bound. That's the type of slavery. It might, to some degree, be lesser than. To some degrees, it may be even greater. Some of the greater types of slaveries that we can think of might be like in the form of addictions, right? Meth addict, all right? Some types of addictions are very dehumanizing and destructive to, to your life as well as to the lives of other people. They're all variant forms of slavery. What Paul is going to do is going to put the types of slaveries into two different categories. One type of slavery is unto unrighteousness, which leads to death. The other type of slavery is unto righteousness, which actually leads to life. Um, as a side, we'll get to this in a second here, Paul actually refers to himself as a doulos or a douloi of Christ. Um, some of your translations actually might say bondservant. I've actually heard a really good teaching on this that basically disproves the fact there's no such word as bondservant. It doesn't exist. There's no such idea of a bondservant in the New Testament time. The idea of a bondservant was added there because the word slave was offensive. It's offensive to us as Westerners, especially us as American Westerners. When we think of slavery, we can't remove the concept of slavery from what happened in our country at the beginning. That was ultimately just done away with at the, with the Emancipation Proclamation. We, we can't rid ourselves from that. So when we think of the term slavery, we're like, that's offensive. We don't want to offend anybody. So let's find a lesser phrase that's a little bit more palatable for us and other people and other readers to read just so that they can get it. So somebody somewhere along the line with good intentions, nonetheless, said, let's, let's call it bondservant. But in New Testament thinking, there was no such thing as a bondservant. There were either servants Meaning you worked for a wage, you worked for a boss, you got a payment, you did a good job. Or you were a slave. And the Roman world was filled with slaves. And depending upon who your master was, you may have had a good master that took good care of you, that liked you, might have even given you his daughter to get married. So now you're part of the family. Good slavery, good master. Or you may have been part of a bad slave situation where you had a bad master, took advantage of you, uh, mistreated you, beat you, kept you from having good food, and you wanted to run away, but you were bound, and if you did run away, you can be caught at the, uh, you know, with the punishment of death, whatever the case is. So the point that I would make is that in the very same way, the idea of slavery is all throughout the Bible. We're either slaves unto uh, unrighteousness, which leads to death, or slaves to righteousness, which leads to life. Those are the two categories the Bible uses. So the first thing I want to take a look at is really what this idea of slavery unto death is. I want to give at least five different examples in which the Bible describes slavery unto death, um, and then we'll take a look at the next one, which is slavery unto life. So the first one is, first form of slavery we've already looked at, Paul already identifies, is slavery to false gods. That all of us are either slaves to false gods, I threw on here impotent messiahs, or we worship idols. Um, and all of them are sort of kind of part of the same concept, the same idea. Paul would say this a little bit earlier in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, formerly, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those things which were by nature not God's. So Paul's uh, own admission is that all of you guys, all of you as humanity as a whole, are by nature in slavery. Um, I've said this before, John Calvin talks about uh, this reality of our hearts, uh, the great reformer basically describes our hearts as being these factories which constantly are uh, producing idols for us to bend down to in worship. The reality is, we looked at this a few weeks ago, but all of our hearts by nature, by nature of being human, we're all worshipers. We're all looking for something to basically devote ourselves to in a very similar way, just like my dog. My dog, I've said this before, I love my dog, it's a good dog. Except for when she chews things up, she shouldn't. But other than that, my dog, it's amazing. Every morning, I open the door, see my dog. She comes in, and I kid you not, she bows to me. She actually bows to me. She, she goes like this. <laughs> she wants me to pet her head. I pet her head, she just keeps bowing. She might yawn a little bit, but she bows a little bit, even more. 
And if I walk in, I haven't seen her for a couple hours. She comes walking in. She, does a, she just bows to me. She knows I'm the master, all right? She doesn't question that, doesn't challenge that. All I have to do is just call her by her name with a stern tone of voice. She will come walking up to me like this. And she'll sit down. She'll kind of like, you know, put her feet up in the air. She, she knows I'm the master, all right? There's no issue, no question there whatsoever. The point that I would make, you like that like little quatch? The point that I would make is this, is that all of us, by nature, being human beings, are designed to find something that is worthy of our affection, and we pour ourselves out endlessly, ceaselessly, for this thing, these particular things that we value. Okay? It's how we are. It's how we, that's how we live. It's how we work. Even the staunchest atheist value something, all right? It might be his intellect. Intellect may be ultimate. Intellect for him may be supreme. He worships that. In other words, if somehow he had a degenerative disease that took away his intellect, he's losing his life. He's losing his world. Everything is crumbling and being destroyed. One of the reasons why God views the reality of worshiping false gods and idols as a bad thing I mean, yes, it's offensive. It's offensive to God. Yes, it's destructive to our lives. But at the end of the day, we understand, like what Paul said, Jesus came, purpose statement, to set us free. Then at the end of the day, at the end of that purpose, at the end of that promise, is actually a good, loving, joyful God who created you, created me, for his own purposes in our deep, deep, pleasure in him but he sees us broken and he sees us finding pleasure in things that are broken he sees us affixing our affections to things which have short expiration dates on them he sees ourselves loving things which rust he sees ourselves pouring ourselves out ceaselessly endlessly forever for things that can be stolen things which will break Things that can be repossessed. All right? And here's the problem. If you devote all of your energies and love something, devote your energy, devote your time, devote your money, devote your strength, devote, devote everything to something that, say, has a short shelf life of six months. Once that six months expires and once that thing's gone, if your affection is attached to that thing, and you lose your joy when that thing's gone. And God says, no, I, I want you to have deep joy. I want you to have eternal life. Not things that are built upon those which will break, which will defile, which will destroy, which will corrupt, which will rust, which can be stolen, which can be repossessed, which can be taken away. I want you to fix your affections on me. I'm eternal. The gods of this world... They got eyes, but they can't see. They might claim to have power, but they're not like me, omnipotent. They might claim to know certain things about your life, but they're not omniscient like me. They might claim to be there for you, but they're not omnipresent like me. Everywhere, at every time, at every moment like me. God's like, they're false gods. They're powerless to save you. They're powerless to really, truly help you. They may make big, bold promises to you, but at the end of the day, they can't keep the promises. They may try to covenant with you, but at the end of the day, they can't fulfill their covenant. They can't fulfill their end of the bargain. So his whole point about this is that Slavery starts really within this sense of what we affix our affections and our attention to. In this particular sense, we find these false gods, these impotent messiahs, and we worship these idols, and we devote our time and energy, strength, money, might to these things, and at some point, we become bound to them. We become slaves to them is the specific terminology the Bible uses. The second thing that we see that kind of follows in a line of progression is the second one is this, that we find ourselves slaves to sinful habits. Let me give you an example of how this typically works out. Everything starts with idolatry, everything. Everything in our lives starts with the sense where, of religion. So at the end of the day, the default mode of our hearts, you gotta know this, the default mode of your heart, my heart, everybody's heart is religion. All of us. 
We will all by nature, by just simple natural doing nothing, we will default mode to some form of religion whereby we will find something that will promise to covenant itself to us, to help us, to give us strength. Now, all of us have different pleasures. All of, ha- all of us have different points by which we're going to be tempted. Um, you know, all of us have different things by which we might be led out, led astray, and t- take the bait, not knowing that there's actually a hook uh, enclosed within that bait, and we find ourselves caught. But what ends up happening is that when we have these false gods or these encounters with these idols and these things that we give ourselves to, devote ourselves to, we spend a lot of time these past couple weeks talking about this, is that we find ourselves then making um, sort of these decisions to keep ourselves bound to these. Let me give an example of how I've seen this work with girls, for example, women. Some women start out, and at the end of the day, they want to be affirmed. They want some sense of love. They want to be cared for. They want to be nursed. They want to be told that they're beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, if they had a good dad in their life, their dad would have done that. A lot of times, some dads don't know to do that. They don't know how to do that. They're disconnected. They think that all they need to do is provide to give money, to provide food on the table, and that's it. And they're very disconnected emotionally. When rather than communicating, telling their children that they love them, desire them, care for them, they're beautiful, what ends up happening is oftentimes women grow up not feeling loved, cared for, so they try to find that somewhere else. What ends up happening is that there are these false gods that are basically on the open market now looking to make covenant with this girl saying, I'll affirm you, I'll give you love, I'll show you kindness, I'll care for you. And the woman's like, sweet, that's exactly what I want. I want to be affirmed, I want to be cared, I want to be loved. But the false god, let's put it maybe in context here, let's call him a boyfriend, uh, he says, but my requirement for pay is, is I want to have sex. But because the girl values immensely, has this over-desire to be valued, loved, affirmed, cared for, she's actually willing to make the sacrifice. Now, sex to her is not necessarily her temptation. She's not looking at it saying, I'm all about sex. I want sex. At the end of the day, maybe what she really, truly desires is just affirmation, care, concern, consideration, dignity, value, respect. And here the boyfriend, young, 15, 16, is like, I can do that. All right, bottom line is, is not too many 15, 16-year-old boys know how to do that, but they make those claims nonetheless. The point of the matter is, back on track, is that he will make the basic payment saying, here's how we will covenant. You give me your body for sex, and I will put my arm around you and tell you that you love you when it looks like you're crying. And so the girl feels affirmed to some degree, and the guy gets what he wants, and there is some level of covenant there. But what ends up happening is these lead to sinful behaviors and sinful patterns. So now you're bound. Now you're bound to keep doing that. Freedom, true freedom, true biblical freedom is not just simply freeing us from sinful patterns. It's actually addressing the false gods that we worship for some dudes, from some guys. It might be all about pornography. They might be trapped by porn. Some guys ask me, why do you always talk about porn? Bottom line is, is that it's the number one thing every single dude I've ever talked to says he struggles with, except maybe a very small amount of guys. So that's why. The point of the matter is this, is that sometimes pornography is not the ultimate issue, nor would affirmation or being cared for, being loved be the ultimate issue. Sometimes porn isn't the issue at all. The real issue traced all the way back upstream is it's a worship issue. You're worshiping false gods. You're putting an innate desire in something that is making promises to you that it can't keep. And so as a result of that, you are making sacrifices to keep getting yourself into that covenant or to keep yourself in that covenant relationship because you've bought the lie thinking that this false god, false deity, impotent messiah is going to actually help you and protect you and so you're willing to make sacrifices to keep yourself going back to that let's call those sacrifices sinful behavior so unfortunately sometimes christian people are really good at just pointing out sinful behavior and saying change your life shape up stop looking the way you're looking stop acting the way that you're acting clean up your mouth stop saying bad words all this when the real issue never really gets addressed and the real issue is one step above it's idolatry the issue is really underneath 
are the idols that we worship that lead to these sinful behaviors, sinful patterns. But we end up becoming slaves to these things. The third thing is we see we become slaves to guilt and defilement. Again, this procession starts with idolatry, leads to sinful behaviors or sinful compromises that we'll make in order to be able to be in right covenant relationship with these false gods. But then what ends up happening next is we find ourselves often, you know, oftentimes slaves to this guilt and defilement. In other words, when we sin, it does something to our soul. It does something to us. But you need to understand, when Adam and Eve sinned, there are certain sins that you can sin, and then you can go back and make rectification for those things and repayment. It's all good. All right? You stole five bucks from me. You can come back to me and be like, look, I'm sorry you weren't looking. I took five bucks out of your wallet. That's a miracle because I normally don't have anything in my wallet anyhow. But you can come back to me and be like, look, here's five bucks. I, paid, I took this from you. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Here's five bucks back. Is it all good? Yeah, it's weird, okay? I don't know why you still might, but it's all good. But there's certain sins that you can't go back and actually, because there's sins that stain your soul. The idea of guilt, scholars and theologians have sort of dissected this one step further and kind of pointed out there is objective guilt and then there's subjective guilt. Um, start with subjective guilt. Basically, subjective guilt is what you feel, meaning you feel filthy, you feel dirty, you feel bad, you feel sinful. Maybe after you commit a sin, you feel filthy. You feel like you wish you can somehow just clean your soul, wash it away, and it's gone. That's subjective uh, defilement, subjective guilt. The objective type of guilt is that we are not just that you feel, but we are. Because some of us can actually feel like we're fine. We can actually feel like everything's fine between us and God. Some of us may even have convinced ourselves of that. But objectively, meaning as a standard of just the norm, the normative is that we are guilty before God. And usually what ends up happening is that when people become slaves to guilt and defilement, we oftentimes try to look for different types of modes of self-atonement. We realize that something's not right. Now, if you're a Christian or you're from a Christian context or a Christian culture or you're familiar with Christian terminology or Christianese, you may say, you know, things like, I'm not right with God. I got to figure out some sort of way to make, my, make my way, my, myself right with God. And so, you know, you might know certain types of Christian terminology. And so your way of self-atonement might be like, you know what? I knew I shouldn't have had sex with my girlfriend and boyfriend last night. I knew I shouldn't have, you know, done the things I did last night. I knew I shouldn't have stolen money. I knew I shouldn't have done the things I did last night. So, you know what? I will, I will make myself better. I'll go to church tomorrow. And so what ends up happening, sometimes people actually go to church as a means of self-atonement. It's like, I'll, just, I'll endure the pastor yelling at me for an hour, and somehow I will be absolved of my guilt. Look, I mean, I'm happy you're here. I'm happy that you endure with me yelling at you for an hour. But th- that's not going to help you. That will not appease anything. It won't wipe away your guilt. It won't change the condition of your soul. Um, Self-atonement, we do this all the time. Sometimes, I've actually found that sometimes some of the people that have a lot of money, that like to give out a lot of money, they give out a lot of money, not because they're just this paragon of righteousness and goodness and kindness, but sometimes it's because they're very guilty. They do a lot of bad things. They feel very guilty, and they think the way that I can make my soul clean again to atone for my sin is to give a lot of money away, to make other people feel good, to help other people, to make them laugh, to make them happy, to make them satisfied, to bless them, to care for them, to do that. In reality, it's a very, very selfish form of benevolence because at the end of the day, you're not doing it like God gives away. You're not generous like God. God's not giving out because he's looking for atonement. God gives out because he's a very good God. He's generous. Sometimes people can give out because they're looking for self-atonement. This is one of the reasons why sometimes people even uh, do self-mutilation to their own body. Here's what I mean by that. Some people have these issues where they cut themselves. They feel the need to draw blood because they look at their lives. They feel filthy. They look at who they are, what they've done, the things that has been maybe done to them. Either A, they feel filthy or because, because of something done to them or they feel filthy because of something they've done. And so they're looking for alternative means of self-atonement to help to bring about some sort of restitution of what's not right in their lives. This is because at the end of the day, it starts with slavery, leads to sinful habits and patterns whereby now they feel filthy. Most women I've ever talked to, 
Let's say that again. Every woman I've ever talked to that slept with her boyfriend, and even if they got married, 10 years later can still feel filthy. Married. Married to the guy she slept with. She still feels filthy. Why? The point that I would make is this. Is that the reality is that sin is an issue in our lives. And how we deal with it is the issue that Paul's trying to deal with it. How we rectify these things, how we find atonement. People who cut themselves feel as if they need to bring about some sort of level of atonement to rid themselves from this guilt, to rid themselves from this defilement. This is what makes the gospel so absolutely amazing. It's because religion comes along and says, you failed, you let down, you didn't you know, appease your idols or your false gods, and now they're angry with you. They're frustrated with you. Something's not right. Now you have to do something to give back to the gods to make God or gods or whatever the supreme being is that you choose to make them, him, it happy again. And so you look for all sorts of means of self-mutilation, generosity, whatever it is, to get yourself back to some place of wholeness. But the gospel comes along and says you can't do that because even the attempts that you do to do that are done with false motivations. And now you're just adding sin upon sin and offense upon offense. But the gospel comes and God says, your gods let you down. I'm a God that won't let you down. Your gods don't have ears that can hear. My ears are always open to you. God comes along and says, your gods have left you feeling defiled because they led you down a path of sin to make sacrifice for those things, to keep yourself in that place where you would feel accepted and affirmed and cared for. But God comes along and says, I see the offense that's on your soul. I see the guilt that you carry with you, and I will wash you, and I will cleanse you from your defilement. The false gods come along and say, you must make atonement for us. Jesus comes along and says, I will make atonement for you. This is what makes the gospel so absolutely amazing. This is why we love Jesus so much. Because he's not a God just barking down scriptures to us saying, do this, live according to that, follow this new rule, live according to this paradigm. He's a God that says, I'll do for you what you are helpless to do for yourself. And I'll do it freely. And I'll do it because I overflow in love. And I'll wash your guilt and your defilement away. The fourth one is this, that we oftentimes can find ourselves slaves to the wounds that we carry. Curiously enough, that oftentimes what ends up happening in the world in which we live is that obviously we sin, but sometimes, oftentimes, we get sinned against. So sometimes the wounds that we carry can be because of sins that we've done. So for example, if someone, you know, gets drunk, commits a murder, and he feels so bad, he carries this sense of guilt upon his soul for so long. He doesn't know how to rid himself from it. He's just, he's wounded because he caused wounds. Sometimes sin that is done against us, this might be molestation, this might be someone, a gal that might have been raped, or some sort of level of divorce, something that ends up happening in a family that just brings wounds and pains and deep hurt and scar to our lives. And we don't know how to get ourselves out of this. These can become various forms of slavery. I'll give you an example. I'm from a family. Both my parents, my parents had divorced. I was around, I don't know, how, maybe 12 years old, something like that. Um, and my parents had divorced. My mom cheated on my dad. My dad, I literally grew up watching my dad, who was an amazing guy. I loved my dad. He's a good dad. Really cared for me. Watching my dad weep. Just cry a lot. Just cry all the time. Because he was absolutely heartbroken. I have images, pictures in my mind of my mom coming home, hanging out with her for a little bit, and my mom leaving, and my dad literally on his knees holding her hand saying, please don't go. That's hardcore. When you're 12 years old and you're, and you're, you're this, this image of a dad that's strength and might, literally reduced to just brokenness. These are, these are wounds that oftentimes people can carry. You know, seeing people who get hurt deeply. It's one of the reasons why church splits can be so devastating, so hurtful, or people that we look to in our lives as being leaders, people that we look to in our lives that might be mentors, spiritual mentors, or business partners, people that we link arms with, we join life with, we share ourselves with, we pour our souls out for, we give our blood, sweat, and tears because there is a sense of love and care and covenant with them. That sometimes those people can let us down because they're human, and when they let us down, our souls are literally devastated. 
wounded, broken. We come, become fragile. There's a various form of slavery that comes as a result of this. Here's a couple examples of it. Bitterness. If you're a bitter person because wound, a wound happened to you, something that took place maybe even many, many years ago, and you find yourself very bitter, very upset, one of the things that bitterness binds you, it, it traps you, it enslaves you, is that you are completely unfree to look at that person that wounded you and wish the best for them. In fact, quite the opposite. You wish the worst for them. You pray their death. Long and bitter, right? You're like, God, let them trip and have an aneurysm and die. I mean, it's just like you, you wish the worst for them. You can't, you can't look at them in a, in a, in a situation in, of success and be super excited about that. You, can, you just can't do that. I remember talking to a friend just a couple weeks ago. He says, you know, Brian, because I was, I, this guy that had wounded me many, many years ago, he says, for the first time, he says, I had this dream. I woke up in the middle of the night Right after this dream, he said, my dream was that I actually wished great blessing upon him. And he says, it felt so liberating. He says, I woke up in the morning, I felt so liberated. I felt like I can actually look at this guy who wounded me greatly and say, I just want you to be blessed by God. That's, bitterness keeps you bound, keeps you in this very small prison cell where you cannot see the best for somebody else. Here's another example. Jealousy. If you're jealous, if you're somebody that is completely bound by jealousy, sometimes it might be because of something that happened to you, whatever the case is, but you're now you're very jealous. Maybe someone that you looked to, that you cared for, you liked, took advantage of you, now you're deeply wounded and hurt, and so you kind of revert to a sense of jealousy. Whenever you see that person, you know, privileged or blessed or something happens to them, you're very, very upset. You cannot rejoice with those that rejoice, right? The Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice. You can't. You can't if you are a slave to the wounds of the past. You just can't. One of the other things that bitterness does is aside, it keeps you completely bound. It causes you to look at the person that hurt you and you basically lock them in in time at that moment in which they hurt you and you never allow for any level of growth in their life. In other words, you can't see them and say maybe 10 years go by. You can't even, you can't even entertain the thought that you know what? Ten years have gone, got, gone by, I've grown a lot, that person has grown a lot. Maybe they're different. Maybe God's changed them. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing? Maybe God's done something in their life, and it's just, maybe they're a different person. But if you're bitter, you can't, you, can't even, you can't even entertain that thought. You're bound. You're a slave. You're a slave to a wound. That's what bitterness does. The final one is this. Slavery to religious morality. This kind of gets us back into the text. Paul basically addresses this in verse 2. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision, that he's obligated to keep the whole of the law. He says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. I think what Paul's whole argument is this is he's writing to a group of people that are basically trying to go back to some sort of religious morality to make themselves right with God. And in this particular case, sort of the quintessential um, emblem of Judaism was circumcision. So these religious leaders came along and says, look, if you really want to be Christians, like super Christians, like varsity, like us, uh, you, you've got to be circumcised. And what ends up happening is you have sort of this system where you've got Christians divided into different sections. You've got Varsity Christians, and then you've got the rest, all right? They're like, they're like the farm league. And, you know, but they're definitely not like us because they don't pray like us. I mean, after all, we pray a lot. Uh, they don't read their Bibles as diligently as we do because we read them a lot. They don't have as much amount of devotion as we do because we're very devoted to our causes, to our passion, to, our, to the things that we call Christianity, and Paul's whole point is that, look, if, if you're going to revert back to the law and you're going to start with circumcision, you can't pick and choose the things that you like and don't like in the law. You, you have to actually submit to the entirety of the law. I mean, the Torah is not a buffet line saying, take the top eight and just chuck the rest. That's not what the Torah does. The Torah says you've got to abide by everything. And Paul says if you're going to go back to the Torah, you've got to go back to every little fine jot and tittle 
and abide by it and live accordingly to it. And if you don't, then you fail. You fail. You find yourself back in the same place where you're condemned once again. So Paul's whole point is that don't go back to religious morality, the sense of circumcision to somehow make yourself right with God because you can't make yourself right with God. Listen to C.S. Lewis quotes, great quote. He's talking a lot about, I think, religiously moral people. And he's got this great quote. Here's what he says. If you're a nice person, if virtue comes easily to you, beware. If you mistake for your own merits, which are really God's, if you mistake your own merits, which are really God's gifts to you, and are contented with simply being nice, you are still a rebel. And all those gifts will only make you fall more ter- make your fall more terrible. Remember, the devil was once an archangel. Let me say this. Gospel transformation is actually different than moral reformation. Let me say that again. Gospel transformation is different than moral reformation. We talked about all these things are sort of in this procession. Idolatry leads to various uh, sinful habits. Sinful habits lead to a sense of defilement and brokenness. Uh, The sense of defilement and guilt lead to a sense of wounds. And then oftentimes out of this company of people that have been broken and wounded and destroyed, you in essence have people looking for some sense of being made right again. They want some sense of being, being able to be made feel good again. So sometimes people turn to Christianity because some people look at Christians and think, oh, they're a bunch of good people. They're nice. Right? And then once you get on the inside, you're like, they're not nice. Right? They're not all nice. Maybe a couple of them are nice. Maybe the dude at the door was nice. Right? Maybe the bulletin, he's nice. But the rest of them are jerks. The reality is this. The church is, and this kind of, this kind of leads from a misconception that we have about Christianity. Sometimes we think of Christianity like this. We, we think of Christianity as this place for the righteous people to hang out and do their stuff. We pray together, we sing together, we worship together, we do the stuff we do together, we let some guy yell at us for an hour, and we think that this is, this is how we're like thrown on the anvil and made constantly righteous. And so we're like this good group of people, we're the righteous people, we're the church, we're the people Jesus loves, and just beyond the door although, are, are all those that are nothing more than sausages on God's barbecue. He'll toast them, all right? So, so let's, let's gather together, rally together. We're the righteous ones. We're the good ones. The rest out there, they haven't figured out yet, and one day they will, or they'll go to hell and burn. It will laugh. But the reality is that's a misconception of the church. The church is not that. Some churches are that, but the church in its essence is more like, more like a hospital for a bunch of broken people. And if that's the case, if this is true, if this assessment is real, then that means that on any given occasion, in any gathering of saints or people are always going to be those that some have it together really good. You're really disciplined, you live a good life, you got a good business, you have a good career, things are going well for you, your family's doing good, everything's happy, everything's hunky-dory, you're skipping to your loo and everything's wonderful. The rest of you, some of you, are gonna be those that have like radical drug addictions, porn addictions, some of you are perverts, some of you are struggling with radical self-issues where you're mutilating yourself, hurting yourself, drug addictions, meth addicts, porn addicts, Every single time we get together in this room right now, that's the case. Because the church is really about a place where Jesus is actually healing people who've been broken. To be honest with you, that that resonates with me. Because I'm not that good of a Christian. I'm really not. I don't read my Bible as much as I wish I could. I'm not, I'm not like this paragon of prayer as I should. I'm not. I'm not as diligent as I should be. I squander a lot of my time. I'm not. But the reality is, is that if the church is what the Bible teaches the church is, then I should feel so safe just being there amongst a company of people just like me. Because there's not two classes of Christians, varsity and junior varsity, there's two classes, though. There's pro league, and then there's farm league. Jesus is the pro league. The rest of us are the farm league. 
And Jesus comes in and says, all of you guys are broken, wounded, hurting, destroyed, and destructive. But I'm shaping you into the image of myself. I'm changing you. Setting you free. Freedom. How? By liberating us from our idols, from our sinful proclivities, our habits, our wounds. Not so that we can be autonomous beings doing what we want, but so that we can pursue the deepest desires in God's heart, which actually lead to purity, to generosity, to kindness, to love, to forgiveness, whereby rather than being in this tribe of embittered people, we're actually letting go of our bitternesses and reaching out for forgiveness. Well, rather than just saying, I will only hang with people that are my friends, we can actually be like Jesus and say, I can actually hang with my enemies. I can love those that persecute me. That's the point of the gospel. That's the whole idea of what Jesus is trying to set us free to do. At the end of the day, I would go so far as to say that one of the biggest problems in the Christian church is the sense of what I would just simply call deifying moralism. Meaning we put moralism as the ultimate pursuit and goal of the church. That's not the goal. I heard Tim Keller, one of my favorite preachers, give this example. I love it. I love it. When I heard it, I was just, I stopped what I was doing. I just, just literally stopped. I was like, oh my gosh, I was just blown away because I felt like this is, this is what I need to hear. He talks about how if you were to take a metal bar, a big steel rod that's bent, that's crooked, and there's two ways to take this metal bar, this rod, steel rod, and put it back to straightness again. One is you get some dude who's like on the power team, right? Remember those, like back in the 90s, those big Christian guys that look not, not really physically fit, but they're big? You know, you know what I'm talking about? All right, both of you guys like grew up in your church groups. You know what I'm talking about? Anyways, they, they take these rods, and they're like, by sheer force, bend them back, right? Like muscles rippling, all right? And, and, and there's stupid music being played in the back. You know what I'm talking about? They're just pulling them back, and they rip the phone book. Anyways, they, you, can, you, can, you can put a rod back to straight by this sheer force. Or you, or you can take the rod and stick it in the fire and let the fire roar until that fire literally turns that rod into just white hot. It changes its composition, not from the outside, but from the inside, and now it becomes something that you can literally change and shape because it's malleable. Do you know that if you take something by sheer force, like a rod, and you bend it, you actually weaken it? You actually weaken it? Whereas if you were to take it and bring it back to the fires, which actually it was birthed from in the first place, you actually strengthen it. Religion is man's attempt to put sorts of strong strengths and manipulative means over you to superimpose over you to somehow conform you back to a level of morality or of goodness or what they would identify as religious activities or religious rightness. Christianity, the gospel, comes along and says, you need to know what God did for you. And let the gospel melt your heart. And when you realize how much God loves you, how much Jesus paid for you on your behalf to save you, that melts your heart. It changes the fundamental person of who you are underneath. But you want to change now. It's love. It's why the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Religion superimposes fear over you and says, unless you change, you won't be accepted in our group. Unless you change, unless you conform, unless you become like us, we'll ostracize you, we'll kick you out, we'll gossip about you, we'll blog about you, we'll talk about you, we'll tell rumors about you, all as a means to get you into conformity. The gospel says, God loves you. And laid his life down through his son on the cross for you, and that changes us. The point of Galatians is not just that we need a change, it's the issue of how we change. How do we change? Religion, religion, religious attempts, Paul is basically trying to say is just another form of slavery. Do you understand that? It's just another form of external slavery 
to strap around your soul to bring you into moral conformity, to inflict guilt upon you, to get you to change, to get you to stop sinning, to get you to be right just like the rest of the tribe. But at the end of the day, does it really work? Do people really stop sinning? No, because they still sin in their heart. And there's still this sense in their heart where they're like, as soon as the pastor, as soon as the leader, as soon as the autocrat of the group turns their back, I'm gonna sin. But gospel says, Jesus did that for me. And he loves me. I wanna love him back. Here's the final thing. Final thing is this, is slavery into life. Wrap it up with this. Galatians chapter five, again he says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Romans chapter six is all about this whole big picture of what slavery is all about. I'm gonna read you just a couple selected verses. Our time is almost done. Just listen to what a couple of these say. Everything sort of ratchets up very closely around verse six in chapter six. He says, we know that the old self was crucified with him, with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So Paul throws out this whole concept of being enslaved to sin. So he's like, look, God wants to set you free from being enslaved to anything. He wants to set you free. So how did he do this? He goes on to say in verse 12, he says, do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies that you would obey its passions. Because he's going to basically say, uh, do not present your members of sin as sin, uh, as instruments of unrighteousness to present yourselves, but rather present yourselves as, uh, to God as those who have been bought from death to life. He says, and your members to God as instruments of, for righteousness, for sin will have dominion over you since you are not under the law. It won't have any more dominion over you. So his point is this, is that to whomever you submit yourself to, you will become a servant to that. You will obey whatever that is. So if you obey those idols, those false gods, those impotent messiahs that are making promises to you, then you will begin to live according to the template that they set out for you. But because they're not God, the template that they set out for you are actually in, and is actually a path of sins. Sin will actually is, is a path of rebellion against God. It's not God's best. Those things will actually lead to further enslavement. Even religion is the same type of thing. Religious activity, religious action will lead to the same type of slavery, which is exactly what was happening to the Galatians. But Paul is going to turn this all around. He's going to say, but if you submit yourself to God, who's a good master, he will actually give you new desires. So rather than the template that you will live in your life now will not be one which is of sinful passion, sinful pleasure, sinful desires. Well, the template will actually be, be one which was very similar to what Jesus lived. In fact, it will be the life of Christ. You will live the life of Christ. Therefore, you will be free. Here's what he says, verse 18. He says, and having been set free from sin, you become slaves to righteousness. Final one in verse 22, he says, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. I finish with this because the whole point of the matter is this. What God does for us is he actually sets sets us free from our former slavery to sin, which leads to unrighteousness, which leads to death, to being freed now to serve God, which leads to righteousness and leads to life. Because God's not gonna die. So therefore, if you set your affections on God, then your joy will never die. Doesn't mean your experience within circumstances will be up and down, but the joy that's rooted in God will sustain you through great moments of pain and hardship. Paul's whole point is that we are all slaves. We're either slaves to God, which leads to righteousness, which leads to life, or we're slaves to unrighteousness, which leads to death. That's his whole point. We are all slaves. The final thing that I want to finish with is, I'm going to have Evan come on up, and I'm done. I know I already said it's my final one, but, you know, I'm a preacher, and we do these things. So the final thing is this, is Paul wants us to understand to the great lengths and depths to which God would go to set us free. God, who is free, right? God is the one free being, one free moral agent in all the universe. He's not bound by any of us. Some people sometimes 
falsely assume that God created us because he needed somebody to love. False. He had somebody to love. God, by nature, is Trinitarian. God, the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. In Trinitarian form, they love each other. They are in fellowship and loving union with each other. God did not need to create us. That was a double negative. God did not need to create us in order to love something. He created us because he is loving. It's not about us. It's about us being brought into something that's so beautiful that God has already experienced throughout all eternity. Problem is, is we became the autocrats. We became the ones who were autonomous. We became the ones that said, I'll rebel against God, and thus rebelling against God, we rebelled against life. And as a result of that, rather than finding freedom, which sin promised, we found slavery and death. Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter two, here's what it says, I'm done. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count it quality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave. You need to know your God came to your level. All religion says, read this book, ascend, come to our level. All religion says, take this course and you will ascend to the level of the great minds. All religion and religious people say, do our works and you will ascend. Only the gospel says, you can ascend. You're broken. You're destroyed. You're slaves. But I will descend. I will become a slave. And I will set slaves free so they can become slaves to the true God. Who's a good master. Takes incredibly good care of those who are submitted to him. He loves them, cherishes them, cares for them, affirms them, comes alongside them. God, unlike false gods, false gods say that follow me and I promise life. We follow them and we don't get life. We get defilement. The true God says follow me and even though you are defiled, I will take your defilement from you. False gods say you failed us. You need to atone for your sin. The true God says I will atone for your sin. This is the God you have. This is the God that made you. This is the God that perhaps for some of you is calling you to turn to him, to repent from sin, to acknowledge your various forms of idolatry and slavery and turn to him. This is why Christianity ultimately is not about just simply moralizing ourselves, getting ourselves better. It's about returning to a God who we've run away from. But he restores us, and thereby restoring us gives us new desires. We change. Our sexual habits change. Our attitudes change. Our tempers end up getting washed away. Our attitudes, our lives are transformed to now we begin to look like Jesus. Calvary Slow, you need to know this. This is how big your God is. This is how great your God is that he became a slave to set you who are slaves free to become sons of God. Paul's big warning is don't take the newfound freedom you have in Christ and go backwards into some sort of form of religious legalism, moralism. Keep Jesus central. We're gonna pray, we're gonna respond, we're gonna sing, partake of communion. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I encourage you, Ask Jesus to wash you, to cleanse you of your sin. If you're here and you are a Christian and there's various things going on in your life where you just find yourself bound, maybe turn to someone around you and ask them to pray for you. Seem kind of weird, but you know what? At the end of the day, this is church. This is church. Chances are probably this person next to you might be going through the exact same thing as you. You guys need each other. I'm gonna pray, we'll sing, worship, partake of communion. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you are willing to become a slave to set us free. 
We fix our eyes upon you, Jesus. We thank you that now we can look to you. We know that you're a compassionate, loving God who cares for us, who loves us. You're not here to criticize, judge. You're here to set us free. The false gods we worship criticize. The false gods we worship, they judge. The false gods we worship leave us feeling defiled. You lift up, you strengthen, you build up, and you cleanse us from our defilement. That's a God that we want to bend our knee to and worship now.